0: You're listening to a podcast from York City Church. If you like what you hear and you'd like to find out more, please visit our website at www.yorkcitychurch.org.uk. As we turn to Philippians, I want to just refresh our memories a little bit and remind us that, that this text is... Written to a community primarily, and, and so actually are the vast majority of, of New Testament documents. They're not written to isolated individuals. I mean, you could count Timothy's and Titus and Philemon perhaps as ones that have a little bit more of an individual flavor, but primarily the, the New Testament is written to churches. Even the Gospels are written for communities of believers, and so. What we're looking at today and what, we, what we're doing in these few weeks in Philippians is exploring the, the Spirit's voice to us through Scripture, to us as a church community. Now, of course, individuals make up the church, and the church grows as God saves one and another and adds them into the church, and so individuals count and are important, but there's a, a real sense for us as a church today through prophetic words and through the Scriptures that, that God sees us as his people and he delights in his people and he loves his church and he cares for his church and he's, if you like, jealous for his church. Not that God is jealous in the same way that humans are jealous. It's a bit different to that, I think, because everything in God is different. But God is, he cares for his people. And so we're going to take care to listen this morning corporately, I hope, to this text from the book of Philippians. The thrust of these letters to the church is that the church is a new humanity, is a new people, it's a people that are born anew in Christ. Not just people who have got some religious commitments. Not just people who were born in the church, you know, I was born in a Protestant country and so when I fill in any forms I tick the box that says Christian because that's just what I assume to be. So no, we're talking about a people who have been born again through faith in Jesus, who are a a new people, a, a new humanity in Christ Jesus. And the point of the New Testament letters is how we relate to one another on the basis of this radical change, transformation that has happened in us personally, but in us corporately as well. It deals with the vertical relationship, what it means to be joined to Christ, but also the horizontal, what it means to be joined to Christ together with other people, who, as we heard in the prophetic word, are often very different from us, are not all of this, All not all cut from the same cloth, if you like. We're all different. So how do we express this sense of unity and togetherness and one-community-ness, if you like? I'm coining new phrases this morning. And last week, well, I was looking at Paul's instructions and encouragements to the church and talking about how the one spirit that Christians share and the unity of sharing in that one spirit may be best expressed by the church's participation in the one mission of God. Um, The church doesn't have a mission. God has a mission, and he's called the church to be participants in that mission. And so unity is something that that comes from the spirit but is expressed particularly through the church being unified and participating in the things that God is doing, and so we're going to follow that sense of unity through this morning. I'm going to take us from uh, the begin, from verse 29 in Philippians 1. We didn't quite get there last week, and into the beginning of Philippians 2. And we're going to see what Paul says about unity, because it's a major, major theme in the book of Philippians. It's a major thing that's going on in the life of a church. It seems. And so let's listen carefully to this text and hear the spirits appeal to us as a church community for unity as a people. So I want to frame this in three ways because I think this is how Paul is kind of framing his argument. The first thing is to look at unity through participation in suffering. I'm going to read verse 30 of uh, chapter 1 for us. Paul writes, for he, that is God, has graciously granted you the privilege, not only of believing in Christ, but of suffering for him as well. I think it's really difficult for us as Christians in the Western world, particularly, to get to grips with what the New Testament says about Christian suffering. Because frankly, I I don't think we really suffer in the same kind of way as the Christians in the first century and the first churches were suffering. I, I don't think that really, by and large, Christians in the Western world, especially in the 21st century, are being beaten up and imprisoned and killed for their faith. Now, in some parts of the world in the 21st century, that is a very true and present reality for Christians. But for people like us who live in a very liberal, political society who live in a a pluralistic society where tolerance is the word and everything's cool you know we might be shut down a little bit in terms of what we're allowed to say but by and large we're left to our own devices and religion has become and christianity has become a nice little thing and if it serves the greater good of the community well that's wonderful but just keep your private views to yourself and so there's no real persecution and there's no real suffering in terms of imprisonment or you know at least not suffering for the sake of Christ. I guess, in a weird way, it's one of the things that we might want to give thanks for in our pluralistic society, that we don't get killed for being Christians. But then on the other hand, there are Christians in other parts of the world who feel sorry for us in the West. That's a trip, isn't it? You feel sorry in England for suffering Christians throughout the world, and they feel sorry for us. Because suffering for the sake of Christ is an assurance of salvation. You are suffering because you've owned Jesus and Jesus suffered and he was glorified. And so it means that I must belong to him and I must truly be part of his kingdom and part of Christ. If I suffer for his name, oh, thank you, Lord, for the privilege of suffering. And they look at us with our comfortable buildings and meetings and our lack of suffering and persecution and they go, wow, God have mercy on them. It must be really hard to be a faithful Christian when your faith is not put to the test every day by people who want to kill you or beat you up. <laughs> so perhaps our perspective without all-seeing, all-understanding Western eye perhaps needs to have a slight shift in perspective a little bit. Suffering as a Christian from some angles and in some parts of the world is seen as glory. It's seen as something that is to be received as a gracious gift from God. And that's what Paul seems to hint at here in Philippians. He's graciously granted you the privilege, the privilege, not only of believing, but of suffering for him as well. Is that how you think of your suffering? What a privilege. Thank you, Lord thank you, I get to suffer for you. Hallelujah. Or is suffering something, get me out of here. That's probably me. God, this, this sucks. Lord, help me. Not thank you, Lord. I've been granted the privilege of suffering with you. So in all our talk and in all our desires to be biblical Christians, which I think probably we all share, I hope we all share. If you don't share that, sort it out. If we all share this desire to be biblical, authentic Christians, then this text needs to be something that we take seriously, doesn't it? It's a gracious privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ. Now, let me say this. It's really important in talking about this that that we understand that this kind of theological scriptural reasoning is not supposed to silence or shut down or clamp down on other questions what we might call existential questions why is this happening to me why would god let this happen to me i don't understand and i'm cross this kind of stuff doesn't clamp down on that you know that kind of God. Why is this happening? Well, you only have to read a few Psalms, and you'll find plenty of that. That is absolutely legit, and I think it's important that we pray like that. It's important that we kind of are, are free to say, "God, what's going on? What's happening? I don't understand." That's okay, but I think what happens here with Paul, what Paul is doing in Philippians, is he repositions the person who is suffering, to try and show them how their suffering makes sense in the light of what it means to participate in the reality of Christ. It's a a reshaping, a reframing, a repositioning. It's not clamping down on the questions. You can't say that. It might be dangerous to somebody's faith if we say, why are you letting this happen to me? No, of course not. But he's trying to draw the church in Philippi and the spirit through this text is trying to draw us into a place of understanding. Okay, how do we perceive of ourselves and where we stand that might put a different slant on the way that we understand suffering as a Christian? Do you see? Because you can ask the question, why are you letting this happen to me, God? Uh, And it becomes bitterness and, uh, and unbelief. But you can pray from a place of faith and understanding what it means to be a Christian and say, God, why is this happening to me? From a place of great faith, from a place of a, a, a soft, warm heart that's genuinely confused and wounded. I don't understand, Lord, but I love you. I don't understand, but I worship you. I don't know why this is happening to me, but I thank you that, you, Jesus, you suffered. I trust in you, Lord. Okay? Paul's trying to frame the position of the sufferer, if you like. Now let me try and show you, by means of an example from another text, another one of Paul's letters, how he might do that. This is from the book of Colossians in chapter 3, and in fact we already used a bit of this in our opening liturgy, Not, not the football one, of course. Paul says, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Now this is the bit that I want you to focus on for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You have died. You all look quite alive to me. What's going on with that? You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What on earth does he mean? Well, it's surely more than just a a clever metaphor. It can't just be a turn of phrase because Paul doesn't say, hey, look, let me give you a clever metaphor to tell you something about what's true about Christians. No, he never says that. He just says it. You've died. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see, Paul's point here is deeply theological. And this is why theology really, really matters, by the way, because it enables you to think about things such as suffering from a Christian perspective. Paul understands a Christian's life is so, so closely joined to and associated with that of Jesus that what has happened to Jesus has happened to the Christian believer. Paul's whole theology of a Christian is that you are someone who is united with Christ. Through faith and baptism and receiving the Spirit, you participate in the reality that is Jesus. So if Jesus has died, you have also died. You died with Jesus. Your old self was crucified with him that you might walk in newness of life. Yes, here we are walking around in the body, so to speak, but we are people who have died a death. We've died with Jesus. And the Spirit is now at work in us, producing a new kind of life. The life of Jesus in us now, the life of the future, in one sense. Now, does that mean that all of heaven is now ours today in our our experience? No, the Spirit is a guarantee, a down payment. You belong to Christ, and your life is wrapped up with Christ in God. Other New Testament authors say, well, what we are and who we are hasn't yet appeared yet. We're waiting for some unveiling of who we truly are, but for now you've died. You're dead. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. You know, it makes an absolute mockery of some of the Christian attitude that says, well, this is my bit of life and I do this bit for God. Well, which bit of being dead didn't you understand about being a Christian? Or did you think that your baptism was just simply a nice religious ceremony that symbolized something? (laughs) No, no. You died with Christ. You were buried with him. And you're now hidden with him in God. This is the reason why it's good to reflect theologically on what it means to be a Christian. It helps give some sense of purpose and meaning to the hard things that we suffer as believers, from temptation, which is a form of suffering, to persecution, which is another form of suffering. You have died. You're united with Jesus. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. The things that happen to him happen to you. To switch the picture, if Jesus is the head of the church, well, what happens to the head generally happens to the rest of the body. If the head has died, has suffered, has been glorified, you too will suffer, and you also will be glorified. So let me urge you again, be theological thinkers, readers, of some fashion at least, Not because it fills your brain up with pointless speculations, but because it enables you to think with clarity and faith about the reality of suffering and weakness in your life as a Christian. So, unity through suffering, through participating in suffering. The church participates in suffering, and it's something that unifies believers. Now, here's the next thing Paul goes on to talk about unity through participation in God. And this is wonderful. Paul's building up this appeal for the unity of the church. And now he's going to press into this idea about the unity in God. So he says, if then there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. I want to focus a little bit more on these kind of elements of encouragement in Christ and comfort from love and sharing in the Spirit. I'm going to leave alone for a little, for a while at least, the the sense of like making Paul's joy complete somehow. Let's think about this element of participating in God. You know, Paul's not really using... He's not thinking, I don't think, about the Trinity, per se, because the language of the Trinity was language that appeared in Christianity in about the second century. A Christian thinker and theologian called Tertullian coined the phrase, the Trinity. But don't make the mistake of thinking that, therefore, what Paul is saying can't have any reference to the Trinity, because all the best Christian thinkers who talked and wrote and reflected on the Trinity were wrestling with Scripture, So they read verses like this, and they thought, Christ, love, spirit. Hmm, interesting. What does that say about God? (laughs) And so we can absolutely read this text and reflect on this as referring to participation somehow in God who is Trinity. It's hard actually to know exactly where to jump in here, because this text and the idea of participation in God swirls around and around in a divine dance of delight. It's a little bit like a, a merry-go-round where you can jump on anywhere in some ways. But we'll try and follow the order that Paul goes in. He talks about encouragement in Christ, right? And then comfort from the Father's love, participation in the spirit. Well, let's think about these things. the Father has loved us. When Paul talks about comfort from love, he normally is thinking about the love of God the Father. That's generally what he's referring to in his letter. So we have here the Son, the Father, the Spirit. So the Father's loved us. How? By calling us in his Son, and along with his Son, sending us the Holy Spirit. And that is comforting, isn't it? The Father loves us. He's drawn us in the Son. He's sent the Holy Spirit. The Son has brought us to the Father, has redeemed us through his own sacrificial love and as with the Father has given us the Spirit to drink as counsellor and helper. That's encouraging, right? The Father loves us. The Son has redeemed us. The Holy Spirit has come to us from the Father and the Son, uniting us to the Father through the Son and the Spirit is teaching us the steps of the divine dance of the Father and Son's eternal joy and delight in each other we get to join in the dance friends and that is what Paul calls participation in the Spirit so by means of three wonderful statements that carry so much rich theological weight Paul says you share in God the Father has loved you Christ has bought you. The Spirit is indwelling you and teaching you and empowering you. Comfort, encouragement, participation, unity. This is what it means, friends, for us to participate in the reality of God. And that's why our worship can never, ever, ever just be here we are and there's God somewhere. I've got the best binoculars. Oh, I think he's there we share here and now in the life of the Trinity. We are in the Father because we're in the Son. And the Son is in the Father. And the Spirit is in us. And the Spirit is the Spirit of the Father and the Son who is sent into our hearts. And so our whole life as Christians is a participation and a sharing in the very reality of God. This is massive, big picture, broad, wide, deep stuff. And you thought that being a Christian was having a quiet time and trying to be good. Think again. It's bigger. You're a participant in the reality of God. And if that doesn't encourage your heart, if that doesn't comfort you, if that doesn't somehow thrill you to the depths of your being, well, you need to go and you need to think about why. Because hearing these things and reflecting on them is the kind of stuff that produces a heart of obedience and delight. It strikes at the core of all our self-righteousness. It strikes at the core of our pride. It strikes at the core of our religion, our doing stuff, because this is what we do because we're religious. It's nothing short of a participation in God. That's what it means to be a Christian. Oh, I believe in God. Well, great. That's excellent. Some of the worst people in history believed in God. I'm not even going to name them. It's too horrible to think about people who have committed atrocities who believed in God. Believing in God is great. But are you a participant? in the triune God are you experiencing encouragement in Christ and comfort from the father's love participation in the spirit have you joined in the divine dance that eternal delight that God has had in God that he brings you into for your joy and progress in the faith that's a Christian that's a Christian life And now all of that lands for Paul in tenderness and compassion for others. Compassion and sympathy, it says there. I don't think it's really possible, personally, to drum up or to dredge up compassion, tenderness, Sympathy for others out of the depths of my own bleak, dark soul. I don't. I don't have it within myself, just as flesh and blood, to to drum up and to achieve that kind of love and tenderness and sympathy. But the more I reflect on the love of God, the triune God, the more I learn the steps of the divine dance and participate in the reality of God and rejoice in that, well guess what? My heart begins to soften and love begins to grow for my brothers and sisters, for others. It all comes from God. And this is why it's a dreadful, dreadful mistake, brothers and sisters, to substitute love for God for love for people. I think sometimes the church, because it's a little bit shy of talking about God with certainty or confidence, has switched out the order of the greatest commandment, which is to love God with all the heart, soul, mind and strength and to love your neighbour as yourself, has sort of gone, well, we're not really sure about God anymore, but let's just say let's love our neighbours as ourselves, and that will do for God. Karl Barth, the great Swiss theologian, said, God is not man, said with a loud voice. Dare we switch out loving God for loving people? No, because you can't get to love for people unless you love God. In fact, trying to love people without loving God is actually, it's not orthodox Christianity at all. It's actually built on heresy. And there's a trip. Trying to love God without loving, trying to love people without loving God uh, is heresy because it makes people alternate. It puts people in the place of ultimacy and relegates God to just something, some power or something that might help me, maybe. The whole point is that we love people through God and for God's sake, because all people are gods. God, apostrophe S. (laughs) By the way, (laughs) not all people are gods. If everyone belongs to God, then we love others for the sake of God. And the way that we love other people is to love them towards God, because God is their highest goal and end. God is the reason for their being, and God is where they are heading, whether they realise that or not. If we love anybody for their own sake, we've made, God, we've made them ultimate and not God. We must love them through God, not simply by themselves. So Paul wants the church in Philippi to learn how to love one another out of an understanding of sharing in the divine life and sharing in the triune dance of the Father, Son and Spirit. To love people through God and to God as their highest goal and highest end. And what that leads to is the final way that unity is expressed. is unity through humility. And we're getting towards a very, very well-known text in Philippians. Next week Pete Rayner is going to speak to you from Philippians 2, the, the great Christ hymn in Philippians. Pete did a wonderful piece in Sweden a couple of years ago when we did the, the good first weekend away. And the, the poor guy had the Aussie flu, actually, and stood and preached this message like through like a head full of whatever. And, and was amazing and brought the house down. And, and I was like, why, well, mate, why don't you just do that? <laughs> Not without the flu, hopefully. Um, don't get infected this week, because otherwise you can email me your notes. And you know. We're going to get to Paul's great expression of what humility really looks like next week. But suffice to say, what Paul wants for this church in Philippi is for their God-rooted, God-saturated, embraced life. Their tenderness and sympathy and love for one another coming from that place to be expressed through humility, not through pride and hardness, but through a tenderness. Paul has got in mind here, let will read the text, that would be helpful, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. You know, Paul has got in mind a a, a posture, a mindset, a way of navigating life and relationship that is not out to get stuff and defend my own and fight for my own and just think about me. He's really talking about having an open soul, about being open to the other about not just bumping up against people, but being able to have space for others. To not consider, well, I've got to, I can only do that if I can look after myself properly. And he's not talking about the complete dissolving of, a, of your personality, but what he's talking about is this sense of having a, a sense that others counts more than me. I'm gonna be outward focused. I'm gonna be free to love you. I'm going to be free to give to you, not grasp and seize and try and make life work for me and then maybe consider somebody else. The opposite to humility is really to put ourselves in the place of God and to want all things to come to me as a final end. Everything to terminate with me to want me to be an end in itself. And therefore, everything should be directed towards me. And that's what we might say in, in colloquial English, is the, the, the world revolving around me. And unfortunately, we're all brought up to believe that that is true, aren't we? Everything revolves around me. Kids are born into the world, in it, And it's one of the shocking things as a parent to realise that Original sin is bang on the money because before they've learned how to talk, the world revolves around this screaming, crying, writhing thing. What? (laughs) And in Christ, we need to unlearn that. And we spend most of our Christian lives unlearning the fact that we're not the center of the universe we unlearn this thing that we've spent all our lives learning that it's all about me I just have to make sure that I'm fine and we're thrust into a community of people with needs and desires and wants and we need to learn to serve and love them and that's tough and no wonder there are conflicts in the church no wonder there are conflicts in Philippi We're going to find that out later. Two women, as it happens. It doesn't have to be women, but in this case, Euodia and Syntyche, two girls duking it out, not agreeing with each other. And Paul has to say, look, come on. A large part of all this is going to land with these two women. And Paul's saying, agree with each other, for crying out loud. (laughs) Humility cuts against the grain of selfish ambition and conceit one of the ways selfish ambition shows up the most is rivalry competition we've all felt that haven't we that sense of somebody close to us thrives flourishes does well gets something achieves something and there's a part of us that churns because of that because we haven't got it where does that come from well I mean apart from the pit of hell it comes from just the reality that we're born in sin and that there's still this body of flesh that remembers what that looks like and we're relearning by the spirit to prefer others needs to celebrate others successes to not be in competition with brothers and sisters but to be like yes how can we bless you in that it's really hard Selfish ambition is not the same as just ambition because ambition can be fine. You know, I'm ambitious to live a long, healthy life. I'm not in control of the outcome. I I have ambitions for my boy, but again, I can't control that. There's ambitions I have. I'd like to catch a 30-pound pike. I can't control that. But they're decent ambitions. They're not wrong. Selfish ambition is I'm looking out for me and woe betide anybody else who gets in the way of me Whoa, watch out. And you know if you've got the disease of selfish ambition, because you flare up when somebody says no to you. When you don't get what you want. When it doesn't go swimmingly well, when somebody that you are close to gets the very thing that you've been hoping for. That's the ouch moment. Oh gosh. Why does my why am I raging inside while I'm forcing a smile and saying, well done. I don't want to give you something today where you've got to now go away and do all these things to try and sort out your sin. So what I'm going to finish with is just urging you again to reflect on the reality of your life as a Christian, as a participant in the divine dance. The Father, Son and Holy Spirit are not in competition with one another. There's no fight between the members of the Godhead for primacy. There is eternal submission and love and joy in each other. And the same spirit that forever has been the bond of love between the Father and the Son is the same spirit that we participate in and teaches us how to love the Father the way the Son loves the Father, and to love the Son the way the Father loves the Son and to have tenderness and compassion and sympathy towards brothers and sisters, because that's the way of Jesus. So don't go away and try and fix it all. Go away and reflect on God. Think on your life in Christ as participating in the triune life of God. And then from that place, allow it to produce love and humility and patience, and tenderness. Because if you try and drum it up out of the depths of your soul, you can do it for a bit, but you can't do it for long. But a transformed life comes from reflection on the realities of God in Christ. As for the rivalry, conceit, if you want a simple answer, stop it. Just don't do it. But if you want to have the transformative life, do the harder work of reflecting on God it's not as simple it's not as immediate perhaps but it's the most genuinely transforming life giving God honouring go and do that if you want something to do Father we praise you that in your great love you've called us into fellowship with yourself through your son you've given us a spirit to drink Lord we confess we are encouraged by that and comforted by that. And we pray for your spirit to transform us as your people so deeply. Lord, we pray in your mercy, let selfish ambition and conceit and rivalry and pride, let these things fall away, O oh God, as our hearts are melted once again and our minds are blown by the beauty and the scale of the love of God towards us. Free us from moralistic religious lives and teach us again, Spirit of God, the steps of the divine dance which you've called us to participate in. We love you, Lord. Amen.